Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Welcome, everyone. Here we go. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy in forgiving our sins. Lord, your great grace and love that's greater than our failings. Lord, your faithfulness that's greater and better than our efforts to be faithful. Lord, thank you as well for your word that's alive and active, that speaks to us. Lord, that plants life in our own souls and transforms us to be like you. Lord, we're hungry today, God, not to just be able to brag to our friends that we were the ones who came to church, but to meet with you and hear from you and know you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, faith is made for the challenging arena of real life. You know, and it's not just snowstorms. It's the storms that we face in many and different ways throughout our lives. And the stories that we've been reading in this series called The Story keep showing us that God is faithful even when people are not. And that trust in God actually works in all the different situations and scenarios and storms of life. Now, trusting God, serving God, thanking God, singing to God like we've just been doing, praying and speaking to God, these are all facets of faith. It's part of what faith ends up looking like in real life. And so every week we've been going through the story. We're in week 20 of 31. That's like 66% of the way through. And we've learned a few things along the way, haven't we? We've been seeing some things repeatedly week after week, right? Number one, we've said every week, that God is in control, right? He's large and in charge. God is the sovereign creator of all things, and he's orchestrating history and the events that happen even in your life and my life. We've learned some things about humankind as well, though, haven't we? We've learned that the thing humans are best at inventing are ways of rebelling against God. I mean, humankind is rebellious and sinful, and yet, created in the image of God, and deeply and dearly loved by God. Amazingly, God is so rich in love that our sin does not cut us off from his love. He continues, the third thing we've seen every week, to be on mission, to rescue, redeem, and restore the people that he's made who've turned away from him. And the the humbling irony and reality for us of the message of Scripture has been that even the very people, not just generationally, but individually, God can break in on somebody's life, do incredible miracles, change everything. I'll never be the same again. I'm going to live for God for the rest of my life. But in practice, that very same person can end up some years later acting like it never had happened in their life at all. And so scripture is showing us things that even though it's happened 2,000, 3,000 years ago, are so relevant into our own lives today. And this morning with, with our opportunity together, uh, we're going to go a little myth busters together. We're going to look at four myths about God and faith, and we're going to see what the book of Esther teaches us about this stuff. And so first, let's start by getting, getting the story. Let's look at the story, see what a little summary of the book of Esther. So, Adam, if you'd be so kind, let's take a look at our little video.
The Israelites left Babylon, many returning to Jerusalem, and some heading to surrounding countries. An Israelite named Mordecai moved to a country called Susa with his adopted daughter, Esther. While they were there, the king of Susa, Xerxes, was looking for a woman to become queen. Young women from all over Susa, including Esther, were brought to live in the king's palace and go through a year of beauty treatments before the king would make his selection. When Esther finally got to meet King Xerxes, he was attracted to her more than any of the other women. So Xerxes placed a crown on Esther's head and made her queen. But Esther did not tell him that she was an Israelite, also called a Jew, because Mordecai asked her not to, fearing his reaction. One day, Esther's father, Mordecai, was sitting near the king's gate and overheard two of the king's officers planning to kill the king. So he warned Esther, and Esther told King Xerxes. The king's life was saved, and the two men were executed. Shortly after, King Xerxes promoted one of his men, named Haman, to a position higher than all the other officials. He commanded everyone to bow down as Haman entered each day through the king's gate, but Mordecai refused. When Haman saw this, he was furious and even more angry when he found out from some of his officials that Mordecai was an Israelite. So he looked for a way to kill not only Mordecai, but all of the Israelites living in Susa. He convinced King Xerxes to declare a law stating that all Israelites living in the region would be killed on a specific day because they would not follow the king's laws. When Mordecai heard about the law, he tore his clothing and wept bitterly. He convinced Esther to go before the king, reveal that she was an Israelite, and ask the king to spare her people. There was one problem. No one, not even the queen, was allowed to come before the king uninvited. If they did, they risked being put to death. But Esther was brave and approached the king who asked, What is your request? Esther said that she wished for the king to host a banquet and to make sure that Haman, the man who wanted to kill the Israelites, was there. At the banquet, she would make her request known. When the day of the banquet came, everyone, including Haman, was there. The king asked Esther what it was that she wanted. She revealed that she was an Israelite, a Jew, and begged for her own life and the lives of her people. The king was furious with Haman, who had convinced him to create the law and had him arrested and killed. Then, King Xerxes not only removed the law to kill the Israelites, but gave all of them living in the region protection and rights. Because of Esther's bravery, the Israelites were spared and even honored. It's quite a story. Uh, re, let's just catch the historical background here. The majority of the Israelites are not living in the land of Israel at this time of history. This is about 480 BC that it's talking about. And majority of the Israelites have been carried off first into the Babylonian Empire. And then the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And the, Cyrus, who was the ruler you learned about last week, gave permission for Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem and Judah to go back. About 50,000 went back. But it meant that the majority of the Israelites 
stayed in what was now the Persian Empire. And they were spread out among different places. The story we're looking at for Esther took place in the capital, uh, Susa, it's called. And that's about as far east as any of the events in the Bible actually happen. East of the Tigris, it's in present-day Iran. And at that time, some of the Jews were doing okay. They'd been in exile for more than a generation. Mordecai himself had been carried off from Jerusalem, but it's quite probable that, it's almost certain that Esther would have been born during the exile. She was a young woman at the time this happened. And they had legitimate hopes. They had land, houses, families, and they had settled down. And the reason they didn't go back to Judah and Jerusalem was life was all right in exile. They had it better in the Persian Empire, even though they were an ethnic minority, than they would have had if they'd gone back to Jerusalem and had to start doing all this rebuilding from scratch. Is that making sense? Right? And so in that sense, their context is not all that different than some of ours. We've got houses, we've got families, we've got jobs, and we're trying to serve God in a context that's not altogether different than theirs. Now, There are some myths that are easy for us to buy into about what faith is supposed to look like. And this book instructs us a bit about it. So this is Mythbusters, the Esther and Mordecai edition. All right. Myth number one. If I follow God, bad things shouldn't happen to me. Right? It's got a relative. Uh, The cousin of this one is, if I just have enough faith then I shouldn't have any problems, right? Let's see what Esther has to say about this. Esther chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Well, it starts out like this. It says that King Xerxes had honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate bowed down and paid honor to Haman. You saw this in the video. For the king had commanded this concerning him, except for one guy. Who was that? Mordecai. Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So all the other royal officials, Mordecai was probably an official of the king. That's what he was doing there in the king's gate. Like I said, he had a decent job. And so the other guys he's working with are saying, dude, why aren't you doing what all the rest of us do? Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. And therefore, they went up the ladder. They told the boss. They talked to Haman, and they said, hey, do you know Mordecai never bows down to you when you come through? Because they want to know, is Mordecai going to get away with this or not? So was Haman happy about it? Yes or no? No. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. In fact, he was so upset that he wasn't content with the idea of just killing Mordecai, who had disrespected him, he thought. He wanted to kill all of Mordecai's people because he had learned that Mordecai was a Jew. And he said, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. The myth is, if I just follow God, everything will go great for me. Here's the fact. 
Following God can be the very thing that provokes problems in our lives. Because Mordecai's issue was really about worship. He wasn't going to bow down to anyone except the Lord or the king. The text said they were asking why wouldn't he do it? And the piece of his answer that we're given to understand was, it's because I'm a Jew. It's because of who I worship that I can't bow down to this guy and act as if he's divine because I worship the one Lord. It was his faith that got him into trouble, not his faith making it all easy so he wouldn't have any troubles. You know, Mordecai could have made his life easier if he hadn't been so rigid about it. I mean, come on, what's the big deal? You just just bow a bit when he goes by. Why can't you just even say to yourself in your own head, Mordecai, that you're not actually bowing down to Haman when he goes by. It's just the moment that I'm choosing to just bow in prayer a bit to the Lord. It happens to be when the guy's going by. No fuss, no trouble. None of my coworkers are going to notice. It's not going to make a scene at work. I'm not going to get any, in any trouble for my faith in my job. But he didn't do that. He said, no. No matter what I'm doing, it's about worship. And I don't want to even create the appearance of bowing down to something besides the Lord. Mordecai had a simple, undivided devotion for the Lord. And he wasn't about to fake it for anybody else. And in the end, whatever else our situation seemed to be about, whatever else the, the issue seems to be, it's about worship. Whatever else it's going on, it's about worship. Will we give the Lord our undivided devotion? It's not just about blessings or sufferings or joys or disappointments or making our own goals and dreams come true. It's about bowing down to the Lord, saying, I belong to him alone. And there's one name I'm going to shout. It's Yahweh. He is the only one. Because he's the only one who's worthy. He's the only one who's worthy. Now, God is generous in his blessings, and God loves his children. When we follow the Lord, our lives are rich. We're filled up, but primarily they're filled up with him. And worship involves giving the Lord our best without worrying about whether it might cost us something else that the world could have to offer. A promotion, more income, financial security. No, faith is about trusting God, not about preventing problems. God is not committed to protecting my comfort zone. But God will reveal his glory when we trust him. You know, God's, you think about the things that God's really committed to in our lives when we follow. He is committed to drawing me close to himself. He's committed to making me more and more like Jesus. He's committed to revealing his glory in my life as I trust him. But that may mean taking me through some pretty uncomfortable situations. You know, God will work it all out for good and for his glory. The challenge is it may not all happen in my lifetime. But worship connects us with the eternal faithfulness of God. So myth number one says, if I just have enough faith or I follow God, I won't have any trouble. What can we say about this myth? But I need a little louder, guys. Help me out, boys. Busted. All right, myth number two. Myth number two would say, well, 
God waits till I'm ready to ask me to serve him. And it's got a close cousin, which is God won't ask me to do anything I haven't already volunteered for. Right? This myth pictures God as someone who's always and only soliciting volunteers, but who will never impose on us if we don't feel like we're ready for something that he wants us to do. Well, let's see what Esther has to say about myth number two, shall we? Uh, flip back in your Bible to Esther chapter 2, just a page earlier, and let's look at how Esther and Mordecai got into this situation in the first place. I'll give you a hint. They weren't volunteers. For Esther and for Mordecai, they were already in deep, being in God's hands before the crisis with Haman had hit. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 tells us this. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish. And Mordecai had been what? Carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Was Mordecai a volunteer? Mordecai was not a volunteer. Mordecai did not move to Babylon for a better job offer or a promotion. He was carried off as a captive by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Now, verse 7 tells us that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, in figure and face, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So she's an orphan. Mordecai's been looking after her in exile. And then verse 8 jumps into the story. It says that when the king was looking to replace his queen, whom he'd fired for disrespect, that Esther was chosen among the candidates. Here's, here's how it reads. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the concubines. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Was Esther a volunteer? She was not. She was taken by the government to be part of basically a season-long episode of The Bachelor where the king is going to sleep with a different virgin every night and he sends back to a lifetime of functional exile in his harem all the ones he didn't like and one, maybe one or two, get called back again for another night or two. This is not her dream for her life. This is oppression. The fact is, God calls people who may not even be aware they're being called. God doesn't wait till we're willing and ready. His calling is actually enough. Esther's a young woman at a time when the Jews own property. Her foster father has a position. She had every reason to be able to look forward, to be able to make a connection, marry a nice Jewish boy, raise a little family, have a home of her own, and manage a decent life. And instead, she got selected. Some government official noticed that she was beautiful. She got drafted for this competition where the king has just taken whoever he wants for his bedroom. 
You know, worship means we serve the Lord in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Even when it wasn't one we chose or volunteered for, or we thought we were volunteering for something, and it turned out to be a whole lot bigger and messier than we expected. You know, it's that way in so much of our lives. You can go ahead and get married to someone who's a wonderful person, but then illness or accident happens. Things change. And now you're in a situation that's no longer what you were dreaming it was going to turn out to be. But faith matters right in those situations. It matters to know that God's calling is enough. His presence will be there. God will be faithful with us, even in the uncomfortable and involuntary situations we find ourselves in. We don't have to run away from where God's put us because God will be there with us and fulfill his purpose. Faith says, God's put me in this position, in this situation for his purpose. Maybe I'm here because God wants to use me. So what do we say about myth number two? Myth number two, God waits till I'm ready and I volunteer and we can do it all on my terms. Next slide. It's busted. All right, now myth number three out of four. Myth number three is, it's kind of a common one for us. God will never give me more than I can handle. It's related to this idea if this is hard, it can't be the Lord. Now, let's see what Esther teaches us about this myth. Elizabeth, would you come? We're going to read our way through chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us the Esther and Mordecai eye view on how this all works out. When Mordecai learned that all of this had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came about and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuch assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hakath went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the, edict, of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he had told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hakath went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king is but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jew will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. 
and who knows that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Thank you, Elizabeth. Here's the fact. God does put us in situations that are beyond what we can handle. The testimony of Esther is God absolutely sets us up into situations where only the Lord can handle the situation. And God puts us in places, situations that are too big for us, too tough for us, too difficult for us, but they're not too difficult for him. They're not too big for him. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. And this reality that God does put us in situations that are too tough for me to handle, too tough for you to handle, it drives us to trust him. It brings us right where he wants us, into his great big arms, where he is the one who intervenes and handles and moves on our behalf. Neither Esther nor Mordecai could fix the situation on their own. So what do they do? They cry out to God. Mordecai's number one response when he gets this was not to get on speed dial to Esther to say, hey, have a talk with your hubby about this. Let's get this fixed. He put on sackcloth. He covered himself with ashes. He started fasting. He's calling out to the one who has the authority to change the situation. He says, God, hear us. He called together the other Jews and they fasted and they prayed and they called out to God. He didn't send a message to Esther. She found out about it when her attendants saw that he was outside you know, in his usual spot, actually, but calling out to God, saying something crazy is going down out there. And she sent a messenger to find out what was happening. She hadn't even been aware that Haman was plotting against him and this new law had come because life inside the castle is a little sheltered compared to the folks outside. But she, he was calling out to God. And in calling out to God, they were saying this, God, we know you can hear us even though we're all the way over here in Susa, we're a long way from Jerusalem, and there's no temple anymore, and there's no offerings being made. But God, we know you're still God right here. And you're king over this king. And we're asking you. We're calling out to you, God, and we're even getting down low in repentance. We're covering ourselves with sackcloth and ashes because we don't want to mis- make the mistake that our fathers made when you were trying to get their attention you were bringing judgment on us in Jerusalem and they didn't turn away from their sin and call out to you. So we're getting as low as we know how to go. Say, we need you. Oh, we need you, Lord. Listen, God hears prayer. But God does call us into places that make us pray desperately and call out to the Lord. So when, when Mordecai gives what was, you know, even potentially an inspired suggestion after he'd been calling out to the Lord. When Esther reaches out to him, he says, do what you can. Go talk to the king about it. He does that. She explains, there's nothing I can do either. I'm I'm the queen, but I can't even go to the king. I can't even show up in his presence without it being my head unless he decides on the spot to say, she looks good today. Here's the golden scepter. No, 
she points out that far from having the influence, she's at a time and a season where it looks like her influence has dwindled to zero. It's been a month since the king's even called on her. He's been calling other girls out of the harem. She hasn't been around to approach him. She's not at her peak of favor right now. So the situation has been set up by the Lord to show that human influence is not going to be enough. And so what does she do? She says, call everybody. Let's take three days and fast and cry out. Let's wait. And then, whatever it costs me, no matter what it takes, I'm going to put my faith into action. I'm not going to expect God's deliverance to come from some other way for some other people. I've got skin in this game. I'm going to put myself on the line. Because I trust the Lord, I'll give whatever I have to what I think is going to be his purpose, which is rescuing his people. And I'll go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Worship commits ourselves to the Lord, no matter what it might cost us. But what about this myth? What about this myth that says that if it, that God will never give us more than we can handle. What do we say about it? It's busted. All right, number four. Myth number four, folks, is that miracles always have to look, well, miraculous. There's an expectation. It's a myth that we could have that... Every miracle has to look really spectacular. I mean, if it's not overtly denying a bunch of laws of nature, well, then God didn't really intervene after all. Are you hearing that one? Well, listen, Esther teaches us that that's a myth because sometimes God's miraculous intervention can just look like coincidence as he uses his sovereign control over all the events just to bring together his purpose for his people. You see, you saw in the video that the book of Esther records that Mordecai, before Haman had even been promoted, that Mordecai had uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. He'd been in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. And he did. He heard the, the, the guys plotting. He passed the word through channels, saved the king's life. And you know what? He didn't get anything for it. What the Bible says was they wrote it down in the books, the records. It was in the official records, but he didn't get anything for it. Um, And chapter 2, verse 21, tells us about that. It says that during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. That was the end of the story. He didn't get, you know, a medal or a certificate, you know, or a chance to have dinner with the president. That was just it. He did his job and they wrote it down. But here's the deal after they've been praying and calling out to the Lord, Esther says, okay, I'll stick my neck on the line and go to the king. She goes to the king and God extends his arm of mercy. The king extends his golden scepter. She's spared. The king says, great to see you, Esther. What's on your mind today? She says, I want to invite you and Haman for a banquet. Come tonight. Now the video oversummarized. It made it look like there was just one banquet, but in fact, there were two. Esther's strategy was this. 
I'm going to invite the king and Haman for banquet number one. Just serve them. And after I've just served them and blessed them, I'm going to invite them to come back the next night. And that night, I'm going to put my request before them to have mercy on my people and to save them. So night number one, good banquet. King asks her, what's your request? She says, I want to give a banquet for you again tomorrow. Tomorrow night, I'll serve you another banquet, and then I'll give you my request. King says, great, we'll be there. Well, that night, just coincidentally, the king couldn't sleep. He's lying awake at night. And so he calls some of his attendants to come and read the book of the records of what had been going on in the kingdom. I don't know, maybe it's boring enough to be a sleep aid. He thought he'd get him back to sleep. But what a coincidence that it just happens he can't fall asleep, that he decides what he's going to do about it is to call for the records to be read rather than for someone from the harem. And he says, read to me. And the attendant just happens coincidentally. Do you know what the attendant reads him about? Mordecai, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found, coincidentally enough, it was just happened to be found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now this catches the king's attention, and he asks a question. What has been done? What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. God sovereignly orchestrates these coincidences to bring Mordecai to the king's attention at just the right moment in a way that demonstrates the loyalty and service of the Jewish people to the king and to his kingdom. Oh, it's just the right moment. Because the next night, when Esther comes to plead for mercy, the king has a fresh perspective on everything that's going on and how Haman had deceived him as the king. And the king is not pleased. And he brings the same judgment down on Haman that Haman had intended to bring on the Jews. Here's a fact. Sometimes God's miraculous intervention looks like coincidence. The timing and placement of seemingly ordinary events combine to make a miracle. Glory to God. God is moving events even when his hand remains unseen. In fact, the book of Esther is structured primarily to make this point to us. You see, nowhere in the book of Esther is God directly mentioned. It's the one book in your Bible that God's never named. Even in all of this crying out to God, sackcloth, ashes, and fasting, the word prayer is never directly mentioned. The story is written to give us a message in the silence, and it's this. God's in control even when he's not taking credit for it. God's in control even when he's not advertising his presence. God is there and he's working and he's moving it forward even when you cannot see him. Oh, he's a good God. You can't get away from him. You can't hide from him. And he's always there when we call out to him. God is never absent even when he's not getting direct credit. God doesn't always seize the attention. 
But don't be fooled. He's still there. He's still working. And he'll still hear when we call out to him. Does every miracle have to visibly break a law of nature? Not so. No, God uses all things to fulfill his purpose and his love for his people. What should we say about myth number four, guys? I can only hear the front row. You've had four chances. Come on, Mercy Hill. There we go. Listen, it matters to us. Because we call out to God for provision in our lives. Say, God, we need a miracle. We're not making ends meet month by month. What are you expecting his provision to look like? Does it have to be that you won the lottery without ever buying a ticket? That you trip over a chest of gold doubloons that were pirate treasure that somehow appeared on your front doorstep? God giving you a job is his provision. It can be his miraculous hand orchestrating. How could you have controlled that that person that you haven't talked with in three months, you bumped into them in the grocery store and they happened to mention that their work was looking for somebody who had just the right profile that you match? How could you do that? It's the Lord. We're sick and we call out to God. But we don't reject his ability to heal us and work through doctors and surgeries and medicines. We lift, we turn our focus, our attention to the Lord. But we thank him just as much when the medicine works as when we just pray and it goes away. Amen? We have to learn that worship honors God just as much when it's not a spectacular seemingly, flagrantly miraculous answer that we thank God just as much for his everyday mercies and his hand of goodness on our lives as we do when he swoops in and the Red Sea splits. I use that example because that's exactly what God's people did the time of Esther. The end of the book records they made an annual festival to celebrate this deliverance just like They had an annual festival to celebrate every year God parting the Red Sea and bringing them out of Egypt. God's people recognized we have to honor the Lord and remember his hand of intervention in our lives just as much when it works through what seem like natural causes as when it's obviously working through supernatural causes. Are you hearing that, church? Listen, talk to your children about how God has worked in your lives. Continue to remember the seemingly ordinary things. Be thankful at your dinner table for the job that you complained about on your way home because it's been the Lord's provision. He's positioned you in the situation. There's some things there that are hard. It's uncomfortable. You don't like it. You wish your family was different and you wish your house was bigger and you wish your car had all-wheel drive on days like this. And there's so many things you could have better. But worship thanks the Lord in the midst of everything we're facing because God is here. Are Are we together? Listen, you can grow up in this church, hear the gospel, and follow Jesus the rest of your life and have as great a testimony as somebody who went completely off the rails, was in the gutter, and God dramatically appeared and brought them out of it. It's the same salvation. It's the same salvation. Please understand, we hear the gospel 
and we respond to Jesus. And it's a completely valid miracle of salvation in our lives. It doesn't require a special vision or a dream because you grew up in a country where the gospel is never preached and Jesus showed up in person in your bedroom to bring you to himself. The proclamation of the gospel, the presence of the word of God in our lives, it's God's wonderful, gracious provision to us. Let us honor and welcome it and remember and recognize God's hand is at work for us. Don't fall for the myths. Serve him with your whole heart all the days of your life. Amen.